Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. We have a great show for you today, and I want to remind you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, like us on Facebook, and check our website out, animalstodayradio.com. Animals Today is a program of the nonprofit organization Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. So one of the guys who released 2,000 minks from a farm in Illinois in 2013 just received his sentence. Now, for the record, I do not approve of or condone illegal activities in the fight for the well-being and rights of animals, for the most part. But this is not the practice of Kevin Johnson and his partner, Tyler Lang, who broke into the mink farm. They released the animals, vandalized property, spray-painted the words liberation is love on the side of a barn, and harbored plans to do something similar to a nearby fox farm. Johnson was sentenced to three years in prison where he was held and ordered to pay the farm owners $200,000 in restitution. So what do you think about breaking the law in the name of animal rights? Certainly, I'm strongly against the use and abuse of any animals, and these poor minks do suffer greatly as they are electrocuted to death on their way to becoming garments for humans. But breaking the law, what do you think? I'm so pleased to welcome for the first time to the show Chris DeRose, founder of Last Chance for Animals, an international nonprofit animal advocacy organization focused on investigating, exposing, and ending animal exploitation. Chris has been a leader in the fight for animals for decades. Welcome to the program, Chris. Uh, Thank you very much, Lori. I'm glad to be here. Chris, so what do you know about what Johnson and his partner were engaged in? Well, I mean, just what I read. Uh, It's a a liberation of a mink farm. And these mink farms, as most people know, and of you, as you brought out, uh, are horrendous. What these animals go through and then they're anally electrocuted or they're suffocated to death and uh, their their necks are broken while they're conscious. It's, It's a really deplorable thing. Now, the one thing I disagree with is, okay, you know, as far as doing something legally, it would be, you know, breaking into someone's home is illegal. But if you hear a child in there screaming and yelling, and maybe the house is on fire or, or, or something like that of that nature, you're going to go in there and you're going to try to rescue that child or person inside that home. Right. So you're breaking the law. But what law is more important? Is the law of saving this person's life or is the law of kicking a door in more important? Good point. So some things may be illegal. Um, To me, it depends on how they're done. I do understand that some of these minks died. Yes, they died. Uh, Out of 2,000 minks, I think 400 or so were run over by cars or what have you. But you know what? That's 1,600 minks that are not dead. If they were not liberated, that would be 2,000 dead. All of them would be dead. And, 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 and I would rather see an animal have five minutes of freedom running in the, in the woods, the grass, and what have you, than to spend you know, uh, whatever remaining weeks, months of their lives in a small, tiny cage going insane, only to be executed and have their necks broken or, or suffocated to death or anally electrocuted. So I, uh, that's, you know, my, my point on it. You know, sometimes some laws need to be broken. And I'm not advocating going out and committing crimes. But if it's done in a way where you're saving a life or lives, I certainly endorse it. And those, those, that law, there's a law more important than the law in the books. 
very interesting perspective. And I'll tell you, I've broken several car windows here in the desert when I see dogs are left in the car unattended. So I get your point. Chris, what do you think about the law that was used to prosecute them, the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act? I mean, couldn't they have been charged and prosecuted with crimes like trespassing and property destruction? Oh, yeah, even burglary, for that matter. You could be trespassing. Yeah, These are, this law was put in there... Uh, to and basically the law for people that don't know what it is if you impede upon any economic flow of any animal enterprise it could be a fur shop a butcher shop it could be anything having to do with animals uh, vivisection animal experimentation it could be uh, no matter what it is if you impede upon the economic flow of that business you now become a terrorist. You are labeled a terrorist. You are not only charged with a misdemeanor or a felony, but it's a federal felony labeling you as a terrorist and therefore creating a lot of problems for you. Not only that, this, the penalties are so severe. And it also is uh, a social thing because it's to, um, it's to create a, a chilling effect, if you will, uh, against any kind of social organizations that are uh, having to do with animals, where you're trying to help animals, it, it, uh, it makes it severely punishable. And it should not be. It's unconstitutional. Uh, one day, we continue doing what we're doing. Even see, we do investigations. We busted a big place in uh, Arkansas in 2006. It was the biggest bust the USDA has ever done. That's with the uh, help of the uh, U.S. Attorney's General's Office, OIG, OGC, ATF, and uh, all these six federal agencies, state agencies, and local. That investigation would be totally illegal today. It would be a, it would be a, uh, a terrorist act to do that. Mm. And we'd be labeled the same type of terrorist as people that fly airplanes into buildings. Now, if you're trying to help animals and no one has ever been killed or even hurt or even spat on in this country... Yet we're labeled as terrorists, and, we, and they're charging people. Good American young people are going to prison, and there's been a lot of them now, because they're trying to do something, and some of them are not aware of the law, are not aware of what's going on. And it's un- you want to talk about un-American. There's nothing more un-American than that. But it's to protect the big corporations, and the fur industry was behind that uh, bill going through. Um, uh, a lot of... Um, animal-related industries were behind it. So that's why it went through. Chris, do you think illegal activity can be an effective form of protest? Oh, yeah. It's a crucial form of protest. Mm. Um, I always take it a step further, Laurie, because uh, we've done direct action, civil disobedience, and and those can result in hunger strikes. And I've opted to, uh, I've done time in the L.A. County prison, which is the toughest prison in the United States. And I've done time in there four times. And I've done a 90-day stint in in solitary confinement. And I was up there with Eric Menendez, the Menendez brothers. I did 45 days in a hole, which I was in there with Richie Ramirez, the Night Stalker, a serial killer, prolific serial killer in Los Angeles. and this is where they put us to try to break us. But all it did is make us fight even harder. Dr. Stewart and myself, um, we, we went on a hunger strike while we were in there. One time I did 23 days, another time I did 22 days. He went on to do over 30 days. I was really concerned about him at that point. But, I, I, yes, it, legal stuff, absolutely. There's definitely there's rooms for the whole spectrum, but there is no room for 
uh, harming anybody. Can you give us a couple examples of something you've done in the past that that you ended up in jail for? Well, yeah, we at uh, UCLA, we uh, we broke into a laboratory in broad daylight with a TV camera crew because to prove that what was going on inside the cat vivarium there was... uh, it was this, it was horrendous, and we did, and we were able to get in there and show the whole world. CNN covered it and went all around the world and showed what went on inside this facility, the uh, Cat Vivarium at the Brain Research Institute at UCLA, and it was uh, very powerful, very powerful. So we hurt them so much that that's where we got the 90-day sentence of solitary, and then another time we broke in, we took over the chancellor's office, to bring attention to the issue of what's going on in the South Campus, and that was a 45-day sentence. And another time, the first, one of the first ones, we took over Dean uh, Ken Shine, uh, Dean Shine's office. He's the head of uh, all research at the facility there. And all these, all peacefully done, all done along the lines of Gandhi, uh, Thoreau, Martin Luther King. Um, and that's how I modeled it all after. Chris, going back to this Mink case, do you think guys like Johnson and Lang are working independently or are they supported by some underground group? No, more than likely. I would say more than likely, almost certain of it, that they're working independently. They're conscious. They've probably seen some of what goes on at the Mink farms and they wanted to do something. It's, just, it's, it's sad and a shame that, again, as I said before, the two young people that want to do something good are now going to be penalized severely and will be labeled. They will be labeled the rest of their life as terrorists. You know, and the the punishment is so uh, severe with these young people that it ruins their lives. Their lives are over. I mean, I know so many of them now uh, that it's totally destroyed their lives. It's destroyed their mental, emotional outlook on everything. And uh, like I said, I've known so many people that have gone to federal prisons for setting up websites exposing uh, uh, people in were, were, you know ahead uh, of different facilities or something like that, they go into federal prison. Young people between 21 and 28 years old, mm. and if you ever looked at them, they're the least a terrorist-looking type of people you've ever seen in your life. They, uh, uh, I don't want to say they're kind of almost like nerdy-looking, you know. They're just really young, innocent people that will just want to see something done to help animals or make this planet a little better place to live in. I want to know if there's any final thoughts. Yes, I would leave people with, if, you know, you get involved somehow if you care, and hopefully you care, because if you don't, you're part of the problem. Yeah, you're part of the, and you want to be part of the solution, you get involved, you do something. There's ways to do everything, you know, whether it be how you shop for your food or what kind of food you eat or the products you use, if they're testing on animals, all that type of thing. My, my grandfather used to say to me in Italian, the noisy bearing gets the grease. you got to make a lot of noise in order to draw attention to an issue. So do something about it. Be a part of the solution, not the problem. That's great. Founder of Last Chance for Animals, Chris DeRose. What's the website? Uh, lcanimal.org. www.lcanimal.org. Thanks, Chris. Thank you, Lori. You're listening to Animals Today Radio, your home for serious talk about animals. Now in its eighth year, Animals Today covers all animal-related topics and issues worldwide with an emphasis on animal welfare. 
Animals Today is a project of the nonprofit animal welfare organization Advancing the Interests of Animals. Its mission is to improve the lives of animals and to encourage increased compassion and respect for all living beings. Check them out at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. Your donation to Advancing the Interests of Animals will support the ongoing production of Animals Today. Just visit aianimals.org and click Support Us. And thanks for listening. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Hello, I'm Linda Gray, and I lost my mother and a dear friend to Alzheimer's disease. Nearly two-thirds of the five and a half million Americans suffering from Alzheimer's are women. Join the fight to help find treatments and cures for Alzheimer's faster by registering at brainhealthregistry.org. We collect vital research information online for free. Please do your part. I'm doing mine. Brainhealthregistry.org. Tax season is here. Many of us are wondering how we can maximize our tax refund and get it faster. Jackson Hewitt CEO David Prokupek shares a few tips on how to make the most of your tax refund this year. At Jackson Hewitt, we're serving hardworking Americans, making tax season less taxing. And this year, you can have your federal refund loaded onto an American Express Serve account. When you do, you can get your refund up to two days faster than an IRS direct deposit. We're gonna let folks pop into Walmart and pick up the refund for under 10 bucks. It's really a great deal. One of the ways to maximize your refund uh, this year at Jackson Hewitt. Are there any other benefits for getting refunds on the card? This American Express Serve card helps you avoid high check cashing fees. You also get $50 on American Express Serve card the same day you complete your taxes with us. It's our way of saying thank you. But the best way to get the biggest refund for which most Americans is the biggest paycheck of the year is to talk to a tax professional and make sure you get it right. For more information, visit jacksonhewitt.com. This is Rick Osick, president of Famous Footwear. Our company is working together with the March of Dimes through March for Babies to raise money and awareness about the serious problem of premature birth in the U.S. As a business leader, I know that babies born very sick or too soon cost businesses billions of dollars each year, in addition to the emotional stress on employees and their families. That's why Famous Footwear is committed to raising funds to improve the health of moms and babies everywhere. Won't you please join us in the March for Babies? Start a team today at marchforbabies.org. There's a really interesting story that brings us to the early days of the animal welfare movement in the United States, and it involves a determined Boston socialite, ladies' fashion, and birds. I want to welcome Kate Kelly, who is going to share this fascinating piece of American history with us. Kate is an author and historian, and her website is americacomesalive.com. Welcome back to the program, Kate. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be with you. Kate, this is so fascinating for many reasons, but especially because it involves a woman in the 1800s and because it represents such a revolutionary idea, that being protecting animals. Kate, where does the story begin? Well, the story 
story begins, in terms of the conservation part of the story, we, we pick up with Harriet Lawrence Hemingway. And she became active in about the 1890s because she became concerned about a fashion trend that had become popular in the 1870s. The fashion trend that bothered her was the fact that women had started wearing big brimmed hats with lots of decoration. The decorations were ribbons, they were feathers, they were all sorts of different things. And sometimes they were actually full bird bodies. Mm. Birds had been killed and stuffed and placed on the hat. Now, this trend seemed to be, it started in Europe and spread over to the United States. The bird killing in order to get these feathers was in Europe and then again gravitated over to the United States. And Certainly the Florida Everglades was an area that was heavily hit because they could get snowy egrets down in that area, flamingos, all sorts of birds. And, and the, the hunters were just going in and decimating the population. They didn't take a few birds. They would kill massive numbers of birds, including mothers sitting on eggs or mothers taking care of their young, and they would take out that parent, and there was nobody there to... to care for the baby birds after that, so that, of course, the birds didn't make it. So it was really growing to the point that there were fewer and fewer. I mean, the bird population was was seriously and noticeably down. But when you look at the economy of the fad, you, you understand what was happening. In the late 1890s, the feathers were selling for $20 per ounce, and that's an ounce of feathers. That's quite a few feathers because an ounce of feathers is a very light thing. But you figure $20 at that time would have been worth $510 in money today. So this kind of hunting was actually more profitable than going out and digging for gold. So so it was certainly something that was, was very, very prominent and prevalent at the time. At that time, Kate, was there any similar interest in the welfare of any other animals? Not at that time, because think about the fact that in the 1870s, we had no motorized vehicles. People were still using um, horses and, and mules for pulling any sort of conveyance. So it was one of those things that animals were very much a part of people's worlds, but they weren't protected. You know, the cats were rodent catchers. The dogs might have been security dogs. I think people also did like having dogs around. Nobody really cared for them like pets in the way that we do today. So no one was watching out for animals at that time. So back to Hemingway. She was a real visionary, wasn't she? Yes, she was. And the thing that was so admirable about her was the part of the world that she attacked. You know, she was not going to be the woman to go down and halt the hunters, but what she could do was begin to change the fashion trend. So what she did was connected with one of her cousins in Boston, and the women started having teas. And at these teas, they would invite different groups of women, and they would present the case that by the women wearing these plumed hats, they were actually causing the destruction of vast numbers of birds in in various parts of the country. Now, some of the women were offended. They thought, this is not appropriate, and I'm going to wear what I'm going to wear. And they would walk out of the tea almost before they arrived. But other women stayed and listened, and eventually Hemingway was able to watch and see a change in the trend in this this type of fashion. And, of course, once the trend becomes less popular, you see a, 
a drop in the market, which is what they needed to do in order to match what was going on in Florida, which was that there were environmentalists in the Everglades who were trying to put an end to this type of, of hunting. But the problem was that if you stationed a warden in a particular area, the warden was also very likely to be killed because, again, the value of those birds and the feathers was just so great to the hunters. Wow. Was there any indication that she had a particular fondness for birds? Did she like birds? Oh, that's a really good question. don't know why Hemingway particularly beamed in on the birds. She and her husband were both environmentally interested, and eventually she not only started the Massachusetts Audubon Society chapter, but she also stayed with the organization long enough to convince them that buying land to set aside as a preserve was an activity that was important for nonprofit organizations. So what was Hemingway able to do to take action and get a male-dominated society to care about this cause? You know, I think she just pushed for the cause. Now, I, I have written about another woman who basically did work through her husband to establish the legal work and to establish a board of directors. So women at that time did not have a lot of ability to to mastermind things. And so when she went after the theory that the Audubon Society should be purchasing land, she did work through her husband, who was an environmentalist. And I think, I, I don't think the women particularly fought that at the time, simply because that was just how they could get something done. And so they accepted what the terms were and worked through the men. And, and, I, and I would say that her husband was absolutely instrumental but she was telling him what she wanted him to do. So you mentioned Hemingway's work led to the establishment of the Massachusetts Audubon Society, which was the first one in the United States, right? It was the first chapter in the United States. George Bird, Bird Grinnell had established the national chapter about 10 years before she started the, uh, the, the national organization before uh, Hemingway started the local chapter. So there was legislation this society was able to pass p- to protect birds. Yes, and we were very fortunate that Teddy Roosevelt was president at that time because when he became aware of what was happening, he was very conservation-minded, although he was also a hunter, but he established in 1903 that there would be a land preserve down in the Everglades, and that's when Pelican Island was established. Now, it was originally established simply as a bird preserve, but then after that it became an animal refuge, and they do date that one to being the first property that was set aside by the federal government for first saving the birds, but then later saving the animals. So we're lucky that we had someone in in mind who was willing to follow that path that was going on, because the first legislation to protect birds was 1901. So, So he was pretty quickly following the lead that he was observing going on around him. Now, Hemingway did convince the Massachusetts Audubon Society to purchase land in Massachusetts to become a preserve, and this is in 1922. Why is that so important? Because she basically set a pattern that we still follow today. It's often the nonprofit organization that goes out and acquires the land and then decides how it's going to be managed. Organizations will buy land for animal and and bird preservation, and then they decide what parts are absolutely vital in order to save and manage for that conservation purpose. Kate Kelly, this was so interesting. Thank you very much. Thank you. I've enjoyed talking to you. 
Rita, you look upset. I am, and I'm not sure what to do. My neighbor's dog is tied up outside. He looks very skinny and sick, and I never see food or clean water given to him. You need to report this right away. What do you mean? You should call Animal Services or the police and tell them about the abused and neglected dog. They can help to make sure the dog is properly taken care of. Okay, I can't stand to watch him suffer anymore. What's the number? Even though most of us take good care of our pets, not everyone treats dogs and cats with the care and compassion they need to be safe and healthy. If you see that a dog or cat is not being treated properly, report it to Animal Services or the police right away. Pets need food and clean water and protection from extreme weather. You can make the difference, and you don't have to give your name. Help stop pet abuse and neglect. Be their voice. Make the call. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at AIanimals.org. That's AIanimals.org. There is no getting around it. The great outdoors isn't so great for your cat. From speeding cars to toxic lawn chemicals, coyotes to cruel humans, cats are no match to the dangers of today's world. The good news is animal behavior experts say cats don't need to go outside to be happy. Your family will be happier and healthier, too, without the ticks, fleas, diseases, and the dead critters the outdoor cats bring their owners. And you will never have to explain to a crying child who or what hurt her pet or why he hasn't come home. Cats can enjoy a happy and safe life indoors. The key is to provide attention, exercise, and a stimulating environment. Play with your cat. It's fun for both of you. You can hide toys around the house, too. Just make sure there can be no detachable parts that can be swallowed. You can protect your cat from becoming a tragic statistic. Tomorrow may be too late. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at www.aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. I'm Bob Dorigo Jones, and this is Let's Be Fair. Class action lawsuits play an important role in our justice system. They can make it easier for large groups of people who have been injured or harmed to obtain justice by sharing legal representation. However, a petition filed recently with the U.S. Supreme Court reveals that an alarming number of class action lawsuits are enriching the lawyers while their clients get almost nothing. For example, a class action lawsuit filed over a popular brand of batteries resulted in a payday for the lawyers of $5.7 million, but their clients got less than $350,000 combined. Put another way, the lawyers got 94% of the settlement money, while their clients got only 6%. That's only five cents for each of the seven million folks who were harmed. Let's be fair. Compare that to the already high 33% charged by most of the contingency fee lawyers advertising on TV, and we can see just how outrageous that is. So how can this happen? Learn how by visiting our website at centerforamericatv.org. Thanks for calling Consolidated Credit Counseling Services. Can I help you? I sure hope so. I'm in debt. Is it credit card bills? Yes, I have two credit cards that I'm making minimum payments on and another that I'm behind on. I owe about $5,000. What interest rates are you paying? Between 18 and 22%. At that rate, it'll take over 20 years to pay off. Wow, 20 years? What Consolidated Credit can do is work with your creditors to lower your payments and reduce or even eliminate your interest charges. You should be able to pay everything off in three or four years. What do I have to do? Just give me some details and get ready to celebrate your freedom from debt. We're Consolidated Credit. We're here to give you freedom from debt. Call now for your free consultation. If I had known it was this easy, I would have called years ago. Call 1-800-897-8374. 1-800-897-8374. That's 1-800-897-8374. Consolidated Credit Counseling Services Incorporated, 5701 West Sunlight Boulevard, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, 33313. Not a loan company, licensed by New York Department of Financial Services, and by the Vermont Department of Financial Regulation, Maryland DM19, Oregon DM80031. 
Do you hear that ringing? I've heard that ringing in my ears for over 20 years. My doctor said... The ringing and buzzing in your ears is called tinnitus, and you're just going to have to learn to live with it. The constant ringing in my ears is annoying. I've tried everything, and nothing worked. So I invested my own money, met with doctors, specialists, and certified labs. After a decade of research, we've developed Tenoxyl, a prescription-free, 100% natural and effective way to stop the ringing. And better yet, it helps me sleep. Trying to sleep with ringing in my ears is almost impossible. But with Tenoxyl, I started sleeping better in the first couple weeks. I'm so confident that Tenoxyl will help you too that I'm giving the first 100 callers a free 30-day supply. Don't let the ringing in your ears control your life. Call now and get your free 30-day supply. Just pay shipping. Take back control of your life. Combat the ringing and start sleeping again. Try it for free. Call 800-930-1669. That's 800-930-1669. 800-930-1669. back to animals today. You know, believe it or not, there are still many, many roadside zoos around the country. These are usually small, unaccredited, typically family-run operations. They're uniformly underfunded, and they're never a good place for the animals. And yes, they're still all around. In Iowa, there is one called Cricket Hollow Zoo, which has received many citations in the past and the animals there are suffering. Our friends at the Animal Legal Defense Fund have recently scored a big victory using the Endangered Species Act. And here to tell us about that is Stephanie Wilson, litigation fellow, Animal Legal Defense Fund. Hi, Stephanie. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay, so the Cricket Hollow Zoo is one of these uh, roadside zoos and you have just scored a big legal victory. Uh, What is this zoo and what's going on? Yeah, that's that's correct. Um, this is a case that started almost three years ago. This zoo is a facility that's run by two individuals, a husband and a wife, and it's just the two of them. And in addition to the husband, Mr. Selner, working a full-time job outside and the two of them running a dairy farm as well, they were solely responsible for the care and maintenance of anywhere from 300 to 350 animals at this zoo. So needless to say, the, the care that they were providing the animals was, was grossly inadequate, and this was repeatedly documented by um, USDA inspection reports and citations, as well as visitors to the zoo, and in particular the five visitors who brought the zoo to our attention and who served as plaintiffs with us in this lawsuit. Yeah. And why can't the USDA, I mean, I read in some of the background material, the USDA has fined them and you've mentioned that they've cited them. They don't apparently have the authority just to say, okay, we are going to to act and shut you down or, or take out these animals. That's true. And part of that is because of some um, disappointing case law um, coming out of a different circuit saying that um, citations and violations are not necessarily a reason to uh, refuse to renew permits. Part of that is um, just simply lack of resources on the part of the agency to, to enforce, and part of that is just the functioning of the law and the regulations and that they're 
watered down, for lack of a better word, without a lot of bite or enforcement mm-hmm. power behind them. And so often what we'll see is despite repeated violations and fines, a lot of these amount to just slaps on the wrist and they don't really stop um, bad actors. And that's why we feel that litigation and being able to use other sources of law, such as the Endangered Species Act here, are so important in getting animals out of facilities such as this one. Now, among the 300 to 350 animals, uh, the ones you are particularly interested in were four tigers and three lemurs. What's going on there? Yeah, so this case, um, as I was saying, and as you correctly noted, the um, regulations under the Animal Welfare Act and the ability to enforce that act are limited. That's actually not the case with the Federal Endangered Species Act, which uh, does have some force and some bite, and that was um, clear intent of the law when it was passed back in 1973. So as, um, as the name would suggest, it does only apply to species that are listed under the Endangered Species Act, and so that's why we focus here on the species that Pam and Tom Selner had in their facility, which were the lemurs and the tigers. Um, and indeed, originally we had wanted to include wolves and lions in the lawsuit as well. However, the judge ruled that the wolves, because the Selners claimed that the wolves were hybrids, yeah. that they were not covered by the Endangered Species Act. And actually, at the time that we filed the lawsuit, the Fish and Wildlife Service had not yet decided whether to list lions under the Endangered Species Act. So we were not able to include them in the lawsuit, but since then, um, lions have now become listed, and we do intend to ask the Cricket Hollow Zoo to voluntarily release mm-hmm. the lions, who are in much of the same conditions as we found the tigers and the other animals in, and if they do not do that, we're fully prepared to litigate to free the lions from the zoo as well under the Endangered Species Act. And, and briefly describe how these animals are living. Well, I think um, much of it is detailed uh, explicitly in the 73-page order, but I think the most striking thing is that these animals were living constantly in their own filth. Um, Repeatedly, we saw that uh, cages and other facilities were um, filled with excrement and animal waste that wasn't cleaned up. And to the extent that it was cleaned up, it was often just piled up onto the side of the cage. Mm -hmm. There was rotting food, which attracted um, vermin and insects. Flies were a major problem. Um, A lot of the USDA inspection reports noted rodent feces in a lot of the facilities and also the food preparation areas. On top of that, the animals and particularly the lemurs, were kept in social isolation. uh, Lemurs are highly social and intelligent animals. In the wild, they live in groups of um, 8 to 20 or more individuals, and they have very complex social structures. The lemurs here were housed essentially in isolation and in very bare facilities without much enrichment. Yes. When it comes to the tigers, the uh, enrichment that they got, and you can't see, I'm, I'm making quotes around the word enrichment <laughs> here, yeah. that they got were bowling balls in their cages. Oh, boy. Um, these are just simply 
inadequate, and they're um, frankly they're they're torturous to these yes. animals to to be in these types of situations. That especially with for the lemurs was was well established in our case through the testimony of uh, an expert witness. Yes who talked about the intelligence of these animals and how keeping them in isolation itself was a violation of the Endangered Species Act because it disrupted their normal behavioral patterns, which, um, which is folded into the definition of, of harassment of yeah. an animal uh, under the statute. And this has really great uh, implications for um, some of our other cases such as Lucky the elephant who's kept in isolation and, and Candy the chimpanzee who's kept in isolation as well. Okay, so you've won this suit. What's going to happen to these animals? So that's, um, that's a very good question. Um, unfortunately, the judge's order itself simply states that the uh, defendants must remove the animals and place them in a USDA-inspected facility that's able to meet their needs. Um, we feel that's a sort of a vague order, as this case uh, obviously demonstrates, and as you've touched upon, transfer to a facility that's licensed by the USDA is a thin requirement because many of these facilities actually do not meet the needs of these species, yet are uh, licensed and in inspected by the USDA. We wish that we had gotten into the order the ability to choose the place where these animals could go. We have been working for many months to secure placement for these animals in sanctuaries, and we've, we have commitments from sanctuaries. Um, so we will definitely be reaching out to, to the defendants and to try to make the best uh, accommodations yeah. as possible. We feel we do have a strong position to to advocate that these animals are placed in uh, the best facility to live out the rest of their lives um, with some peace and yes. comfort that they've been denied for so long. But um, that truly does remain to be seen. Stephanie, the Selners, the owners of Cricket Hollow Zoo, they have not been characterized as horrible people. What's going on, do you think, with them? Do they have any insight as to the neglect and abuse that's happening under their watch? I can't speak to their mental state, obviously. And the trial order does repeatedly state that it was the judge's finding that things simply got out of hand here. It was the two of them. They took on too much. They simply could not provide the care that they should. Our position obviously is that is that many of these animals shouldn't be in captivity to begin with. They shouldn't be exhibited um, for human profit, particularly under circumstances such as this where no conditions of captivity could provide uh, adequate or natural um, environments for these animals, such as the lemurs and the tigers. You simply can't recreate what their natural environment is in any form of captivity. Right. But, you know, it, it would seem that the judge believes that they, that they didn't have bad intentions, but they simply let things get out of hand. Yeah. We think it's fair to say that the case strongly established that these conditions have been going on 
for well over a decade. And so the Selner should have realized that they were in over their heads many years ago when animals were dying and when they were living in their own feces and they should have done something about that long ago. It probably shouldn't have required so many USDA citations and fines and a lawsuit to have some change, but I really can't speak to their uh, mental state or their intention towards these animals. Stephanie Wilson, uh, congratulations. She's with the Animal Legal Defense Fund. We look forward to uh, your continued uh, excellent work. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thanks for your interest in the case. Hi, it's Dr. Lori Kirshner, host of Animals Today Radio. And I'd like to invite you to join me each week right here for the latest animal news from around the globe. From animals in the wild to animals on farms and in agriculture to our beloved dogs and cats, Animals Today tackles the important issues about their welfare and rights while promoting compassion and respect for all living creatures. And yes, Animals Today is your home for serious talk about animals, but there's big doses of fun and adventure for everyone. If you want to know what you can do to help tigers in the wild, or whether your family should adopt a tortoise, or why you should avoid buying puppies from pet stores, you will love Animals Today. So make sure to join us on this station each week. Visit us at animalstodayradio.com, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and join the discussion on Facebook. Thanks for listening. Hi, it's Dr. Lori from Animals Today Radio, and here's your Animals Today fun fact for today. Do you ever wonder why your cat bumps their head against you? Well, that unexpected butting of her head is known as head bunting. And this is your kitty's way of bonding with you. She is identifying you as one of her friends and head bunting is her way of sharing her love and affection. And this is your Animals Today fun fact for today. This is Rick Osick, president of Famous Footwear. Our company is working together with the March of Dimes through March for Babies to raise money and awareness about the serious problem of premature birth in the U.S. As a business leader, I know that babies born very sick or too soon cost businesses billions of dollars each year, in addition to the emotional stress on employees and their families. That's why Famous Footwear is committed to raising funds to improve the health of moms and babies everywhere. Won't you please join us in the March for Babies? Start a team today at marchforbabies.org. Tax season is here. Many of us are wondering how we can maximize our tax refund and get it faster. Jackson Hewitt CEO David Prokupek shares a few tips on how to make the most of your tax refund this year. At Jackson Hewitt, we're serving hardworking Americans, making tax season less taxing. And this year, you can have your federal refund loaded onto an American Express Serve account. When you do, you can get your refund up to two days faster than an IRS direct deposit. We're gonna let folks pop into Walmart and pick up the refund for under 10 bucks. It's really a great deal. One of the ways to maximize your refund uh, this year at Jackson Hewitt. Are there any other benefits for getting refunds on the card? This American Express Serve card helps you avoid high check cashing fees. You also get $50 on American Express Serve card the same day you complete your taxes with us. It's our way of saying thank you. But the best way to get the biggest refund for which most Americans is the biggest paycheck of the year is to talk to a tax professional and make sure you get it right. For more information, visit jacksonhewitt.com. I'm Bob DeRigo Jones, and this is Let's Be Fair. A monkey, an animal rights organization, and a primatologist walk into a federal court to sue for infringement of the monkey's claimed copyright. Sounds like a joke, right? But it's actually a line from a real court document filed by a lawyer for a photographer who was sued last year by the group People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. 
To make a long story short, a monkey in Indonesia took a picture of himself using a camera that a nature photographer had left unattended. It was hilarious, and the monkey's selfie went viral. Unfortunately, that's when the real monkey business started, and PETA sued the photographer. It claimed that the monkey, not him, should get any money generated by the photo. Let's be fair. I know our legal system sometimes seems like it's gone bananas, but I'm happy to say that a federal judge has just issued a tentative ruling upholding common sense. He says that a monkey can't own a copyright. PETA, however, pledges to keep fighting. Learn more. Visit our website at centerforamericatv.org. Hello, I'm Linda Gray, and I lost my mother and a dear friend to Alzheimer's disease. Nearly two-thirds of the five and a half million Americans suffering from Alzheimer's are women. Join the fight to help find treatments and cures for Alzheimer's faster by registering at brainhealthregistry.org. We collect vital research information online for free. Please do your part. I'm doing mine. Brainhealthregistry.org. So, Peter, a study was done by My Media Inc., which is a personal cloud for digital content, to answer the question, who loves their pets more, dog or cat owners? Yeah, okay. The study included a 1,000 participants. Peter, who do you think takes more pictures of their companion animals, dog owners or cat owners? Oh, that's easy. I'm going to go with cats. You are right. Cat owners take an average of four to five photos of their pet per Day, which takes up 3.03 gigabytes per year. 7% of cat owners take more than two videos of their pet per week. The dog stats, dog owners take an average of two photos of their pet per day. Okay, so that's a lot less. That's a lot less, half as much. Okay. Which is 1.21 gigabytes per year. Mm-hmm. 10% of dog owners take more than two videos of their pet per week. Just think about the like what this does to the GDP and how people should be working instead of taking all these pictures and storing them. I know, but listen to this. 40% of both cat and dog owners have run out of storage on smartphones. Oh, wow. Also, who runs out of storage on your phone? I guess cat and dog people do. They do. Also, a pet video a day eats the storage away. Two pet videos per week at 11 seconds each equates to 1.14 gigabytes per year. And then finally, 42% of all dog and cat videos and pictures that are taken are shared. 70% of pet photos are shared via text message. Okay, so the next generation of cell phones has even more storage. You would think so. Major support for Animals Today Radio comes from International Society for Animal Rights. For decades, ISAR has been a world leader in the battle against dog and cat overpopulation and its moral, social, and economic costs. Please visit their website at www.isaronline.org. March 31st, which is Thursday, is Cesar Chavez Day, a national commemorative holiday which celebrates the birth and legacy of Chavez. Chavez was born in 1927 and died in 1993, and his impact as a civil rights leader and labor movement activist was immense. 
He co-founded the National Farm Workers Union, which later became the United Farm Workers, and succeeded in gaining improvements in working conditions for farm laborers. President Obama urged Americans to, quote, observe this day with appropriate service, community, and educational programs to honor Cesar Chavez's enduring legacy. Now, you might ask, what does Chavez have to do with animals? Well, it turns out that Chavez also believed in the rights of non-human animals, even at the point of being vegan. In 1993, Dr. Elliot Katz, founder of Defense of Animals, presented Chavez with IDA's Lifetime Achievement Award. Our friend Eric Mills knows a thing or two about Chavez and his views and practices concerning animals. Eric is founder of Action for Animals. Welcome to the program, Eric. Thanks, Laurie. Appreciate you having me on. Eric, what did Chavez believe about animals and their place in society? Oh, boy. Cesar Chavez is a national treasure. And one of my most treasured possessions is a letter that the great man wrote to me back in 1990. I'd written to him about my work on rodeos and chariotas, the Mexican rodeo issues, and asking him for a support letter. And he wrote me back a short letter, but it contains this wonderful paragraph I'd like to read if I might. Uh, excerpted, kindness and compassion towards all living things is a mark of a civilized society. Conversely, cruelty, whether directed against human beings or against animals, is not the exclusive province of any one culture or community of people. Racism, economic deprival, dogfighting, cockfighting, bullfighting, and rodeos are cut from the same fabric, violence. Only when we've become nonviolent towards all life will we've learned to live well ourselves. That's pretty extraordinary, I think. Sure is. I don't know if most folks know, but Mr. Chavez was a a disciple of Gandhi and his uh, philosophy of nonviolence, and it carried over into society at large. I had the great good pleasure of meeting Mr. Chavez a couple times, marched with him in San Francisco once, and he told me at the time, this was probably the late 80s, that he himself was a vegetarian, had been so for a long time, and not for health reasons, but for ethical reasons, as was, he said, his, I think, 87-year-old mother at the time. Nobody knows this, and I think his followers need to be aware of that and put it into practice. I was in the state capitol again yesterday. Every year I circulate this letter throughout the capitol. There's a lot of lip service paid to Mr. Chavez on his birthday, March 31st, as well there should be. But most of the legislators will bend over backwards saying nice things about Chavez, but they don't put anything into action that he preached. I met with the Latino caucus again this year, 25, 26 members, begging them to do a bill to ban steer tailing at the Mexican rodeo. It's a standard event. I got photos and video footage of tails being ripped off and horses getting their legs broken when the steers run the wrong way. And I think it's really important that we have a Latino author to carry the legislation so that it won't be seen as a racist attack upon Mexican culture and tradition, which, of course, it would be probably either way. None of the Latino legislators will touch it. They're all very sympathetic, but they say they can't do it because it's only Mexican-Americans who do this. I said, look, with all due respect, you're playing the race card in reverse. Right. If Cesar Chavez can speak out about this, then for heaven's sake, why can't you? Probably eight to 10,000 steers will be affected by such a law, and nobody will go there. And then I talked to the gringo legislators, and they won't carry it either because they say they would be penalized by the Latino caucus with their other legislation. Hmm. So both sides are playing the race card. 
you know, I'm from the South, and I'm gay. I know what racism and bigotry is all about. This is not it. It's simple. Animal abuse going under the guise of tradition and culture, not acceptable. And it has to stop. I wish Cesar were with us today. He'd be leading the fight, I think. Eric, how do you recognize Cesar Chavez Day? Well, as I say, every year I circulate this letter throughout the Capitol, begging the legislators to do to put into practice what Mr. Chavez preached. I write letters to the editor, uh, which is always good. Uh, I'm sure there are going to be celebrations and marches, and I've set up booths in the past about this, just getting the word out there. We tend to forget sometimes, too, that animals are members of the society as, as well as people, and we all deserve respect and concern and consideration and laws to protect us. As you know, the Pope recently ordained Junipero Serra as a new saint. I think it should have been Cesar Chavez, quite frankly, because he, he did, he's done more, I think, for people and animals in this country than most anybody else I can think of. But Cesar was a man of peace. He fasted for it. He really lived the life that he talked about, and very few of us do that. So he's certainly one of my heroes. Eric Mills, thank you very much. Thank you. I want to read to you a great quote by Chavez. We need, in a special way, to work twice as hard to make all people understand that animals are fellow creatures, that we must protect them and love them as we love ourselves. And that's the basis for peace. The basis for peace is respecting all creatures. We cannot hope to have peace until we respect everyone, respect ourselves and respect animals and all living things. We know we cannot defend and be kind to animals until we stop exploiting them, exploiting them in the name of science, exploiting animals in the name of sport, exploiting animals in the name of fashion, and yes, exploiting animals in the name of food. Thursday, March 31st, Cesar Chavez Day, a national commemorative holiday which celebrates the birth and legacy of Cesar Chavez. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. Animals.